Our passage this morning is from Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 8. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. This is God's word for us today. You may be seated. My name is Josh Havman. I'm the executive pastor here at Grace. We are continuing in our series called Living Stones. And for those of you who are here in the fall, you know that that name, that title, comes from the book of 1 Peter, where Peter says that we all, if we are followers of God, are like living stones being built up into a spiritual house for God. And so uh, we as a sermon team, Brooks and I and Jason and um, others said, hey, this is a powerful idea that God wants to use people like us who are basically rocks. And he wants to put his Holy Spirit in and among us. And he wants to build us into a house where he will live. And it would be good for us to spend some time looking at how he has done that throughout history. And so that's why we're going through the Old Testament, not going verse by verse through the entire Old Testament right now, but going through... Uh, looking at individuals in the Old Testament, Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham now, uh, Isaac, to find out how God is using these people as living stones. So that's what we're doing. That's why we're doing this series. And today we're going to talk about a really difficult passage where Abraham is asked to sacrifice Isaac. And a lot of you have heard this story and a lot of you have wondered at the God who would ask anybody to sacrifice their child. So it's an important passage for us to grapple with because it's a hard one and we shouldn't overlook or ignore the hard things. And before we even get into it today, I'm going to pray. Normally there's like an introduction, there's a few slides, then we stop and pray, but today we're going to pray first. So pray with me and we'll get started. Lord, I thank you for this word from you, this hard word. I pray that we would be able to make sense of it. I pray that you would lead and guide us through it and that we would know you better because of it. God, please be with us uh, in the reading of your word and the studying of your word, Lord, and as we go out from this place to help us to carry what we learn with us. Lord, teach us by your Holy Spirit's power, not by my words, not by these songs that we have sung. Lord, it is so true that it is good to trust in you, but the song fails and you succeed. So I pray that we would trust in you, Lord, not in any other thing. Ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. So the first verse here in our, in our passage today is this. It is, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. 
So what are we talking about when we say after these things? Last week, Brooks spoke from chapter 17 in Genesis and a little bit in chapter 18. Brooks, by the way, is on vacation. You get me for the next couple of weeks. I apologize in advance. Here I am. (laughs) Just like Abraham. In Genesis 18, 19, 20, and 21, we get the things that chapter 22 is referring back to. So let's go over a little bit the context here. What's going on? When the narrative says, or when the the author of Genesis says, after these things, what's he talking about? Well, he's, he's saying that in Genesis chapter 18, God showed up and he said finally to Abraham and Sarah, here's a specific time for the child that I'm going to bring. Remember his name used to be Abram, which means exalted father. And he says, I'm going to change your name to Abraham, which means father of many nations. And so Abraham thinks that this ought to mean that there's a child coming. And finally, God shows up in chapter 18 and he says, about this time next year is when the child's going to come. So finally, we have a date. We have a time frame that that he can sort of wrap his head around. And then he says, oh, and by the way, I'm going to go and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And so chapter uh, 18 and into 19 is the story of God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, of Lot and his family, at least most of his family being rescued out of that. His wife turns back and uh, she dies as a result of her unfaithfulness, right? Her unwillingness to do what God has commanded. And then in chapter 20, we get another one of those uh, awesome decisions by Abraham to pass off his wife as his sister, this time with Abimelech. And the same thing happens, right? The same thing happens where uh, Abimelech and the people around, they look at Sarah now 90 years old and they say, she's a beautiful woman. Maybe one of us should marry her. And then God comes and warns Abimelech and says, that's a bad idea. Don't do that. You'll die. And so Abimelech says, hey, Abraham, she's your wife. You should have told us, right? Same thing that happened when he went to Egypt. And then finally in chapter 21, Isaac is born. Uh, Hagar and Ishmael are sent away. Remember, Hagar is the son, I'm sorry, Hagar is the slave that uh, Sarah gives to Abraham, and she and Abraham have a son, Ishmael. And so, in the earlier chapter, Hagar and Ishmael go away because Sarah is persecuting them, and then they come back. And now, because Isaac is born, Abraham sends them away, and God provides for them. And there's a story of how God provides for them. And then finally, Abimelech establishes this treaty. He says, Abraham, you've kind of gotten a, got to be a big deal in the land. And I think it would be better for both of us if we had some boundary lines drawn and, and it was clear whose property was what and that sort of thing. So all of this happens. And then we get to chapter 22 and it says, after these things, why does the narrative do this? Why does it go from, here's my covenant with you, Abraham. Uh, here's my covenant with you, Abraham. <clears throat> here's my covenant with you three, four times. And then this whole section on all these different things. And then after these things, God tested Abraham. Why does it do that? I think it does that because all of these different events, chapters 18, 19, 20, 21, these are all threats. These are all opportunities for the covenant to be broken. And so the the narrator, whoever the narrator is, this is probably an oral tradition that's written down. We think it's Moses who's doing the writing, but we don't have anywhere in the record of Genesis an author saying, I'm the author. But the narrator wants to show us that there are lots of different ways in which the covenant could have been broken. It could have been broken when Abraham and Sarah decided again to try for another child at another time. But God was faithful and God came and he said about this time next year 
you're going to have a child. It could have been broken when the surrounding communities, Sodom and Gomorrah, are so evil that the stench of their evil is rising to heaven and God himself visits with two angels and he says, I'm going to check this out in person in the flesh. I'm going to show up, right? It could have been, the covenant could have been destroyed when the surrounding evil destroyed his family. It could have been destroyed when Lot who shouldn't have been there in the first place, God called Abraham and he said, leave your family, leave your father's family behind, but he takes Lot with him. And there's another story that we haven't read uh, that we've already passed in the narrative where Lot gets taken captive and Abraham goes and he rescues him. So it could have been when uh, Lot was threatened. It could have been when Abimelech came and he could have taken Sarah and he could have impregnated her. And then there's the question of whose child is this that Sarah has given birth to? Right? So all of these are opportunities for the covenant to be broken. And what the narrator, I think, is trying to show us through all of this is that God is faithful, that God's promises are certain, and that God can be trusted. So that's why all of this is here. And that's why it says, after these things. Because it wants us to know that despite all of these opportunities for the covenant to be broken, it hasn't been broken. But we do have this difficult difficult emphasis that we can put on chapter 221, which is that after these things, God tested Abraham. So it's not without, it's not without precedent though, that God is acting. He is certain in his promises. God is, is showing us, and we're going to see this in this passage today, that God's promises are certain. He's showing us that he's reliable, that he's trustworthy. And then we're going to see that God is going to use trials to test our faith. And you're going to ask, why? Why does he have to use trials? We'll talk about that. We don't like trials, right? We would much rather just be given the thing that we need. Nobody, have to, nobody wants to have to work for it, but that's, that's the reality. And there's a reason for that reality. We'll talk about what that is. And one of the best reasons is that trusting God in trial is going to draw us closer to him. We need to see how that works. Many of you who have read this scripture in the past, or you've heard this, this passage spoken on, you know that it points to Jesus. You have ideas already in your mind about how it points to Jesus. But let's look at all of the ways that it's pointing to Jesus. Normally, here's where I would pray, but we already did that, so we get to go on to the next slide. God's promises are certain. Let's just recap for just a second. How are his promises certain so far in the people that we've talked about? Well, Adam and Eve, you recall, were told that they had the entire garden for food. He said, you can eat whatever you want from everything that's growing except for from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just, just don't eat of that one tree. Because if you do, I promise, you will die. And they do eat of the tree and they do die. You say, well, that's not a very good promise. Why do you have to keep that one? Because that's his character. That's who God is. That's what he does. If he says it, it's true. Just like with Noah, where he says, listen, I'm going to destroy all of the world except for you, Noah. You and your family. You get on this boat. I will protect you. And you know what? God keeps his promise. He destroys the world. He protects Noah's family. And with Abraham, we've seen already a number of ways in which God has kept his promise. He said, I want you to go into this land and you're going to be a blessing and I'm going to bless you. And that happens. He goes into this land and he's starting to be blessed. He's growing in wealth. Abraham has all of these flocks and herds. So many, right, that the local people come and the Abimelech wants to make a treaty with him to say, hey, let's keep our stuff separate. I see that you're growing in power. I see that you have a blessing here. God gives him Isaac. God keeps that promise. But like Abraham, we experience trials. And so we have to ask, where are these coming from? Why do we have these trials and what is the point of them? So I contend that we make trials 
Have you ever made a trial for yourself? Have you ever done this? There's trials of volition, right? Things that we do that result in trials. The examples from these passages are Abraham and Sarah choosing the wrong thing. We see them choose the wrong thing when they go to Egypt. And they say, uh, Abraham says to Sarah, hey, just call yourself my sister. The same thing with Abimelech. Or when Sarah says, hey, God hasn't given me a child, here's Hagar. Right? They would not have had those trials had they not chosen them. There are other times, though, when we just fail to do what we ought to do, when we fail to trust God, when we fail to wait on God. Brooks talked about waiting well a couple of weeks ago. And every time we fail to wait on the Lord, we're inviting some trials. There's also trials that God makes, famine, plague, judgment. We see this throughout Scripture. And this is, this is dangerous territory, right? Because we want to be able to look at every single God-enacted uh, trial and say, we know exactly what that's for. We know why that country has a trial, because they're evil. We know why those people are going through trials, because they're bad. But that's not the point here. The point here is just to say that, understand that God is going to use trials. I'm not encouraging you in any way to look at the extreme suffering in Turkey and Syria and 40,000 people lost and say, you should know exactly what they've done wrong and how they've sinned. That's not the point. The point is that God is going to use all of it, that he is in control of it all. Jonah and Job are two good examples. You guys know roughly the story of Jonah. God calls Jonah to go and preach to the Ninevites, and he refuses Right? And that results in a trial. He's swallowed by a fish. That's something he chose. Right? But then later in the story, later in the story, Jonah is upset that God may not, may not judge the Ninevites. He's upset that God may not destroy them. He thinks they should be destroyed. And so he's sitting outside of the city, and it's hot, and it's windy, and he's miserable. And God allows this plant to grow up over him to shade him. And then, then he's happy because he's got a break from the heat. But then God causes the plant to die, and Jonah Jonah is more upset about the death of the plant than he is about the death of the Ninevites, or the potential death of the Ninevites. And God ends that book. He doesn't resolve that trial for us. He doesn't tell us how it works out. He just says, Jonah, what are you thinking? Why are you concerned about this plant? Why are you concerned even about your own life when there's all of these souls here in Nineveh that might be lost if you didn't come and warn them? So God is using all of those trials, some of which Jonah has chosen, some of which God has enacted. And the same thing with Job, where God is enacting trials. We see in the outset, in the, in the setup for Job, that God allows these trials into Job's life to test his faith. His family, uh, his children actually, are lost. All of his property is lost. His health is lost. And throughout throughout, Job is a model of how we're supposed to respond. Even though, even though he wants to hear from God and God corrects him in that, at the end of Job, I'm sorry, yeah, at the end of Job, Job is commended to his friends and his friends have to go to him to get, to receive forgiveness and blessing because they're the ones who've done wrong. So, so there are different examples of trials used to test our faith. All of this, all of this is only worthwhile though, if God's promises are certain. And because they're certain, Here's what's true. That we can see God using trials to test our faith for a reason. I'm not going to go to all of these texts, but if you're a note taker, I encourage you to take notes to write down these texts because I can guarantee all of you have trials. All of you are experiencing trials right now. You have children in your life who don't do what you tell them 
to do. Where is that child of mine? You have coworkers, you have friends, you have siblings, you have parents. If you're in relationship, you're experiencing trials. If you're not in relationship, if you're a hermit and you snuck in here this morning, you're still experiencing trials because this world is broken. So why are we experiencing trials? Why do we have these things come into our life? Well, James tells us, in part, it's because belief without action is worthless. He says, faith without works is dead. He says, if you say you have faith, but you don't do anything, if you don't live it out in any way, then that's a useless faith. And so God is going to allow trials in your life to develop your faith, to make it work itself out. If you don't ever do anything with your faith, it's a dead faith. So you should expect trials. You should expect struggle in your faith because that is growing your faith. It is enabling, it is proving your faith even. Tested faith glorifies God. I, I said as we started that First uh, Peter is where we got our idea for living stones. First Peter also says that the tested genuineness of your faith will result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not just any faith, but rather a tested faith a tested faith that's proven to be genuine. That's what results in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So if you feel like your trials are not leading to anything, know that your trials can prove that you have a faith and they can prove that it is a genuine faith. John 15, 2 is Jesus talking to his disciples saying, the father is going to prune all of the branches that are on his vine. You guys know what pruning is, right? It's when you eat a lot of prunes. No, it's not what you eat a lot of prunes. Pruning is when you cut a growing plant to enable it to grow better. When you cut a growing plant to enable it to produce more fruit. Cutting is not pleasurable, right? When you have a part of your body taken off, when you have a part of your organization cut out, it's not fun. But pruning is necessary. Jesus says the Father is going to do this for those branches that are on his vine. That's you all, if you are in him, and that's going to make you more productive. So the trials are going to show your faith. They're going to make your faith genuine. They're going to make it more productive. And then first Corinthians, Paul is talking to the Corinthians. He's saying, listen, if there is anything that you are trusting in, that's not God, it's a problem. And so Trials are going to be used by God to help us have right faith, which is in him alone. And here's what Paul says. He says, listen, we were despairing. We were in such significant trial, Paul tells the Corinthians, that we were despairing of our lives. We were despairing unto death, he says. And he says, it was so that, I know that these trials were so that we would trust the God who can raise the dead. Understand that Paul is saying that their trials were so significant that they thought that they were going to die. And he said, I understand now, after the fact, that God was using those trials to not trust even in this life, but to trust rather that God can raise the dead and that he is so trustworthy that we can trust him through this life to the end of this life and beyond. But what about this trial? How does God use the trial with Isaac? Let's read the passage again. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. 
Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, of which I shall tell you. And so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose, went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham, he took the wood for the burnt offering, and he laid it on his son Isaac. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father, he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire, the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went both of them together. What's the test here? The test here, the reason that God is testing Abraham is because he has promised him a son. He has promised him children, heirs, more numerous than the stars in the sky. He says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make you a blessing, and through you, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. And here's the test. I want to know whether you are trusting the promise or the promise keeper. I want to know whether you are trusting the thing I'm giving you or me because I'm the one giving it. And spoiler alert, he passes the test. How do we know he passes the test? Look at his answer to Isaac. He says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. He's trusting in God. God has provided the son. God has asked for the son back. And Abraham says, I know. And we'll see where in scripture he says, he knows. I know that I will receive you back. You see, trusting in God is a trial in trial is going to draw us closer to him. And here's what it looks like for Abraham. He says, you've had barriers of behavior, Abraham. I told you to go to the land that I would show you and yet you didn't, not right away and not in the way that I told you. I told you that I would give you a son, but you and your wife, you took it upon yourselves to try to get your own son. You've gotten in the way. You have created trials for yourself. So I'm going to give you one. I want to make sure that you are trusting in me. And to do that, I'm going to ask you to sacrifice your son because there's a good chance that you're going to make an idol out of this guy. That you're going to trust him more than you trust me who gave you this boy. God knows this because he has his own son. And because he is going to give his own son. He knows this because he made us. I thought I knew what this was about um, because I named our third daughter, Mariah, about this passage. I named my third daughter, Mariah Emmanuel, because Mariah is the place where Abraham has to sacrifice Isaac. And Emmanuel means God with us. And God was with Abraham here. So I thought I understood then Mariah was diagnosed with cancer at five. Then I understood better. And a lot of you understand even better than I do because Mariah is healthy today. But some of your children aren't here anymore. 
some of your spouses aren't here anymore. And you know what it is to have God ask you to give the good gift back to him. This is a serious trial. It is of no value to have this kind of trial if it does not bring us closer to God. And it is of no value to have this kind of trial if God himself is not willing to submit himself to that trial. Never ever follow a God who doesn't do the thing he asks you to do. Look at what happens. They came to the place of which God had told them. Abraham built the altar, laid the wood, bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. You better believe that was a quick, here I am. (laughs) Here I am, he said. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. You trust me and not the gift. You have not withheld your son, your only son from me. You see, we're always worshiping something. We were created to worship. So it's either going to be the one true God, or it's going to be ourself, or it's going to be some other idol. But we're always worshiping something. And Abraham is actually worshiping God. I went the wrong way. Nope, I didn't. (laughs) So he's actually worshiping the Lord, and he does not withhold his son. So here's how it draws us closer to him. If it's a test of faith... From God, it's good. It doesn't feel good, but it is good. It doesn't feel good when Abraham has to rise early in the morning and take his son and take servants. Charles Spurgeon, who's a 19th century preacher in England, famous preacher, he says, you know, it's probably, it's probably worth noting that Abraham doesn't consult Sarah about this. She probably would have told him no. But he's trusting the Lord, that the Lord knows what he's doing. It doesn't feel good, but it is good. It calls us to reject sin. If it's a trial from God and it's good, it's going to call us to reject sin. What's the sin here? What has Abraham done? Well, he's done a lot of not trusting God up until this point, And now he has the promised child literally in his hands, right? He's, he's able to hold his son. And the sin, the temptation to sin, is to trust in Isaac and not the Lord. So the trial is, well, give that back to me. Are you willing to give that back to me? And he is. So it calls us to reject sin. It calls us to release everything. Up to and including, right, his son. But here's the thing. It's also, it's also a test of faith from God if it's completed by him. And this is where we get hung up on this passage. If we look at this passage and we say, how could God do this? That's, that's a good question. And I don't have a perfect answer for you, but here are a couple of things that might help. In this, in this culture, people regularly sacrifice their children to gods to receive favor. And you'll notice that at the end of this story, a child is not sacrificed. And we see that throughout scripture where God takes what the local gods are doing and he turns it on its head. He says, hey, your local god would ask you to sacrifice your child. I'm not actually going to do that. Instead, I'm going to provide the sacrifice. So that's one reason. But another reason is because he is for sure going to provide the sacrifice and he wants us to see that. So it's completed perfectly by him. 
Let's continue. Abraham lifted up his eyes. He looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. This is the first time this has happened in recorded biblical history that one person right, is saved by the atoning sacrifice of something else. This sets the model for the entire Jewish system that comes after it. Moses and the temple and all of that. Right? This, is, this is the model. We're going to have a substitutionary uh, atonement. We're going to have something that's brought in, a substitution, and it's going to be the atonement for your sins. In this case, it's a ram that God provides. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mountain of the Lord it shall be provided. And then what does God do after this test? The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time. He said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. All the things he's already promised to do, he says, look how your tested faith has proven genuine. Look how it's producing fruit. Look what we can do now that you are not trusting in any gift that I give you, but you're trusting in me. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. God's promises are certain. God uses trials to test our faith. Trusting in God in trial draws us closer to him. I do want to read these verses to you because these are important verses. For us to understand why we have trials, to understand how God uses trials, we have to see throughout scripture his consistency. So God tells Abraham... God tells Abraham, hey, I am with you and I'm going to provide for you. And that's great, but we're not Abraham. So turn to Deuteronomy 31.6, if you have a Bible. Deuteronomy 31.6. This is Moses talking to Israel. Moses talking to Israel. Moses is about to die. And Joshua is about to succeed him. And so he is preparing the people for this transition of power. And he says... 31 6, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. That is the people in the land that you're going into. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you, and he will not leave you or forsake you. So God promises this to Abraham, and then he promises it to Israel. And then if you have uh, the New Testament there also in your Bible, flip over to Hebrews, because he's going to promise it not just to Abraham and to Israel but to us as well. 13.5 says this, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now you could say, well, that's just a letter to the Hebrews. We're not the Hebrews. Oh no, but we love money. Don't we? And all the things that money can buy. We are like the Hebrews if we are tempted to trust in money and not trust in the Lord. And so this is absolutely written to us as well. Keep your life free from the love of money. Don't run after the things of this world, but trust me because I will never leave you or forsake you. See God saying this all throughout scripture. Hear him saying it when Jesus says it to his disciples. Go and make disciples, he says, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you 
I am with you to the end of the age. So Jesus says this, God the Father says this, his promises are certain, he will never leave us or forsake us. But you will have trials, and he is going to use those trials. Stay in Hebrews, we're going to turn back a few chapters here to 11. Let's hear about Abraham's trial now through the lens of the New Testament, through the lens of Jesus. Hebrews eleven seventeen. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Okay, so the author of Hebrews is letting us know the stakes. He's letting us know that at the beginning of all of this, this whole biblical narrative with regard to the people of Israel, at the beginning of all of that, God said, I'm going to bring the promise through you, Abraham, and it'll be through your son. And Abraham has the promise, and now he has the fruit of the promise in his hand, and he's willing to give that up in this test. And it says here, read this in verse 19, he, that's Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him, Isaac, from the dead from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So Abraham has faith that God's promises are certain, and he passes the test, and it grows his faith. And the author of Hebrews says, you need to pay attention to that example. Because Abraham knew it was all supposed to go through him. All of this blessing, all of this future was supposed to flow through him and through his son, and he was willing to give up his only son in order to do this. And I said to you earlier that it's a good, good trial from God if God is willing to do it himself. So look, look at the ways that Genesis 22 is pointing to the gospel. John 8.56. John uh, records Jesus talking to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are debating with Jesus here in chapter 8. And they're saying, they're saying you're, you're the son of Satan, right? That's who you are? We don't believe that you follow God at all? And he says... No, actually, uh, he said, if you were children of Abraham, you would know who I am because Abraham knew who I was. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. And here's what he says, chapter uh, 8, verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, we don't have any record of God talking to Abraham. We don't have any record in Scripture of Abraham rejoicing that he saw Jesus' day or that he knew about Jesus. But here's what we do know. That God used a trial in Abraham's life where his son was demanded and his son was spared. And here's what I think God did. I think God said, Abraham, you know how it felt when there was a ram that was sacrificed instead of your son? Understand, I'm going to do that for the whole world. But actually, I'm going to give my son. My son is going to give himself. And he's going to die, and all of the world is going to be saved. So this is Abraham rejoicing, I think, knowing, knowing the significance of this trial. This is Abraham rejoicing that he sees Jesus' day. John 15 is Jesus telling his disciples what love looks like. So, Genesis 22 is pointing to the gospel because in Genesis 22, we see that somebody is being offered as a sacrifice, right? But the way of the gospel is that we would all choose to lay down our lives for each other. Look at what it says, uh, John 15, starting in verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. 
it doesn't seem right being, being offered as a sacrifice. And yet it also doesn't seem right having to offer yourself as a sacrifice. But this is what Jesus is calling us to do. But we have to ask ourselves, if we're going to believe this gospel, then we have to believe, we have to believe that laying down our life is better than holding on to it. Giving up our child is better than holding on to them. Giving up our spouse is better than holding on to them. That's a hard test, but that's the test that God is putting before us. But why is he putting that test before us? Because he wants us to be close to him. He wants us to come closer to him. That's not our natural inclination. Abraham and Sarah tried a dozen different ways to make it work on their own terms, and none of them worked. All of them created more trouble. So God says, do it my way. Try it my way. I made the universe. I made you. I know. Trust me. And then in John chapter 20, it's the account of Thomas. And we've gone over this recently too, but Thomas says, I have to see Jesus, right? I have to put my hands in the wounds. But Jesus actually appears before Thomas and all of his disciples. It says, uh, starting in verse 26 of chapter 20, eight days later, Jesus' disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them, and he said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Listen, God wants to give you the opportunity to believe him without trial. He wants to give you the opportunity to just take him at his word. It is so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him at his word, right? Just to know when he says, thus saith the Lord, that that's all we need. And that's, that's what he wants to give us. That's what he wants to give Thomas. He doesn't want Thomas to have to see him and put his hands in the wounds in Jesus's hands or put his hand in his side. He wants him to be able to believe but the trials are going to come to test our faith because we're not going to believe. But know that his promises are certain so that you can trust that when he puts you through trial, it's not for no reason. Now, I pray that none of you ever have to put your child before God and say, you can have them back. But this is the attitude that he wants in us. The same attitude that was in Jesus Christ, that he's willing to lay down his own life the things that are most precious to him. That's what he's asking everything from us. But remember, he is also providing everything for us. When he gives us eternal life in his son, he is laying down everything he has. He is giving up his own life for our sakes. So he does not ask us to do anything that he himself has not done. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, these are hard things. These are difficult things that we can't fully understand. Even when I say these words, even when I have experienced with my own children, Lord, what it is like to fear their loss, I still can't always wrap my head around why. But I believe your word, Lord. Help my unbelief. Help all of our unbelief. When our spouses are sick, when our friends and our loved ones are dying, when the world around us is chaos, Lord, I pray that we would believe. Even when we don't see you here, I pray that we would take your word to mean what it says it means. 
We would believe that you are who you say you are and that you do what you say you do, that you save us. Lord, this is the hope of the gospel that you save us, that you save us from sin, that you save us from death, from destruction. Lord, help us to cling to that today, the the certain promise that we can have everlasting life in you without doing anything, just by believing in your name. I ask it for your name's sake. Amen. Have a good week. Go in grace.